You're listening to Free Your Inner Guru, a podcast for big-hearted leaders making a meaningful impact in the world. We have big conversations about conscious leadership, choosing a life of personal growth, spirituality, and the self-help industry, so you can connect to your inner wisdom and become the leader you want to see in the world. To become a part of the Free Your Inner Guru online community, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook, where we take the conversation online. Now, on to this week's episode. Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. I'm pleased to release this week's episode, an interview with Dr. Stuart Eisendrath. Dr. Eisendrath is the author of When Antidepressants Aren't Enough and the founding director at the University of California, San Francisco Depression Center. A senior clinician and research psychiatrist at UCSF, his lectures on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy have been viewed more than 1.5 million times. We take on some big topics in this interview, and you may find that I'm more subdued or serious than usual. There were a couple of things going on. First of all, I was a little bit intimidated, or that's how I was. it was occurring to me. Um, the subject matter, um, having an expert, and wanting to make the most out of the conversation. Um, but even more so, I was also simultaneously reflecting on the people in my life, including myself, who struggle and are still struggling with depression and my own experience with it. This gave me extra incentive to mine Dr. Eisendrath's experience and vast knowledge. It was a pleasure and a privilege, and I am delighted to share this kind and thoughtful conversation with a kind and thoughtful human being with you. Enjoy. So our guest today is Dr. Stuart Eisendrath. And Dr. Eisendrath, I'd like to welcome you to Free Your Inner Guru. I'm very excited to talk to you about your book, um, When Antidepressants Aren't Enough, and to, to, to help our listeners have a, a greater understanding of, of, of depression and your, your body of work and, and how it might be helpful to them in their everyday lives or in their relationships with others. So, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Can we start off with an overview of how you got into your, your medical practice and line of work and, and how depression became your area of expertise? Well, I was very interested uh, in medical school in, in both medicine and the internal medicine and psychiatry. And I, uh, when I finished, I was sort of in some uh, indecision about which way to go. So I did a straight medical internship, but then I decided I really wanted to do psychiatry. So I did my psychiatry training. And then again, I was kind of still had a love for internal medicine. So I went into the area called, uh, consultation liaison psychiatry, which blended, uh, looking at uh, psychiatric issues in medically ill patients. So I got very uh, experienced in dealing with people with mind-body connections. And that's how I got started interested in being uh, uh, focused on uh, areas that that included that mind-body focus. And that's how I started to develop my interest in mindfulness. 
which brings connections to the mind and the body. And I started, uh, due to some personal stress I was experiencing, taking mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, class. And I actually got so much out of it, I repeated taking it a second time. And after that, I got into uh, taking, uh, going on uh, several retreats uh, focused on meditation, seven-day retreats. And I really got a more in-depth experience. And after that, I continued my uh, different experiences in mindfulness. And then in about 2002, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was first introduced. And myself and a colleague of mine at the University of California, San Francisco, uh, became very interested in that and took training in it and then uh, got started with it and brought it back to the University of California, San Francisco. In your book, you highlight um, what mindfulness, meditation, what cognitive therapy mean very close to the beginning. I took a note here to sort of help it frame the conversation where uh, what I gleaned from that was that mindfulness meditation began 2,500 some odd years ago as a Buddhist practice. And cognitive therapy is a, a subset of, you know, a, a larger umbrella of therapeutic practices, but it doesn't. And I wrote down here that we don't need to dig around in our childhood distress. We can change our relationship to it. Is that a fair um, definition of what cognitive therapy is? Well, uh, cognitive therapy and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy differ a little bit. Uh, they, they both are focused on what is going on now, but uh, and not so much what has gone on in the past. But my, I, I'd like to maybe give you an example of what the difference is. If you think of yourself walking down a street in a small town where there are uh, a number of storefront windows, uh, and in depression, those storefront windows are filled with depressive thoughts. In cognitive therapy, traditional cognitive therapy, you'd go into the store window and then try to answer those those thoughts. So you might. So if the thought is "I'll never succeed," you might try to come up with an alternative thought like. Uh, I succeeded in some ways, so maybe I will be able to succeed. So you're coming up with an alternative thought. You're countering the negative thought. In the mindfulness approach, it differs in that instead of going into the store as you walk down the street, you see the negative thought, but you don't go in and buy the thought, so to speak. You don't buy it and take it on as your own. You really view it. And then keep on walking, going where you want to go. So you're more in control of your life. Now, the negative thoughts don't go away. They don't vanish. But you're not taking them on. You're changing your relationship to the thoughts. So traditional cognitive therapy and the mindfulness-based approach uh, differ significantly in what happens. It's making me think of, um, you know, I'm, I'm a coach, so I'm, I come at things from a, you know, a, a different 
not a different perspective, but what I'm seeing in there is, is that for someone who doesn't, not everybody responds well to trying to counter their thoughts or convince themselves. It's, it's not like a, a form of resistance to them. And is that what, what the mindfulness based is trying to get around, like not putting up the resistance to that thought or trying to engage with it in any way? That's right. You have it exactly right. In, in traditional cognitive therapy, the, the trouble is uh, if a person has been depressed for quite some time, and in our research, in our study of people who'd been depressed, the average duration was seven years. So the person has really gotten entrenched with negative thoughts, and it's hard to counter them. So in the mindfulness-based approach, you don't really have to counter them. What you're doing is recognizing those thoughts are just thoughts and not facts, and that's important. So when you have a negative thought, when you notice it, you can say, ah, that's a symptom of my depression. It isn't something that I have to accept as being true. And once you start to change your relationship to the thought, it brings quite a bit of freedom and the ability to respond more skillfully to those thoughts rather than just having to react to them as if they're a fact. I think it would be helpful before we go further into it to, to situate depression, you know, in our society, um, you know, in terms of how prevalent it is and, and whether or not it matters that someone has a depression diagnosis um, in order for this body of work to be helpful or useful to them? Well, that's a good question. There's Depression is really the number one cause of disability in the developed world. It causes more disability than cancer or coronary artery disease. And if you look at the World Health Organization estimates of depression, there are over 300 million people suffering depression right now. So it's a massive public health problem. And it causes such disability because it usually starts at a fairly young age, either as a teenager or, or, or in the 20s, and then recurs over time. And as I said, the duration of an episode can be quite long uh, if it's a form of treatment-resistant depression. And it, it, thus, it causes a great deal of disability over the lifespan. And when you say disability, what do you mean by that? I mean uh, the d difficulty in being able to uh, carry out the normal activities of life, such as social relationships and work. So the person isn't able to function very well. They may be able to function, but it's with diminished capacity. Mm. And and for you said three hundred million, and then can I extrapolate from that that there are people well and above and beyond that number who maybe who may experience less intense or still pervasive symptoms of depression or forms of depression that would affect them? 
That's that's exactly correct. That those are people who would meet the criteria for a formal diagnosis of depression. But there are many people who have what we call a, a subclinical depression, where they have some of the symptoms of depression, but not all of them. But they're still suffering and usually having some level of disability as well. So that would be even a larger population. Mm. So that's. That's a lot. That's a that's a lot of people. If not, you know, myself or somebody listening, it's somebody that you know or love is likely struggling with some form. Yes, you're more likely to either experience or know somebody who's experiencing depression than you are to know somebody who's broken an arm or a leg. It's very, very common. And the chance of experiencing depression, uh, in your lifetime is somewhere between 10 and 20%. So at the same time as this, you know, um, I'm the word that's coming to mind is sort of epidemic level um, scale um, occurrence of depression. There's also a huge mindfulness movement. Do you, do you see the two as related at all? Well, uh, they could be related uh, in the form of uh, mindfulness may be a, a response to being depressed. Uh, I, I think that would be the way I would see the relationship between them, that many people uh, may be interested in mindfulness as a way of dealing with stress and depression. Uh, I, I don't think they, they're related in the reverse direction where being mindful causes depression. I wouldn't say that, but uh, as a coping technique, mindfulness uh, has has developed uh, as a way of dealing with stress and depression. So let's dig into um, how mindfulness helps with depression. Well, Mindfulness helps with depression in various ways. Uh, it, it helps uh, by in one important way of being focused on the present moment. And that means you might be uh, focusing your attention on uh, your breath. And if you're focusing your attention on your breath, you're just focused on what's happening second by second. And being focused on the present moment has important effects on depression and, and anxiety. Because I look at those as being disorders of time. In depression, mm. you're, you feel as if you have already experienced a loss, a loss of some type. It may be a loss of a loved one, a loss of a relationship, a loss of a job. And you are continually focusing on that, perhaps what we call ruminating about it, and uh, meaning you go over endless loops thinking about that loss. In anxiety, you're focused on future losses, future catastrophes or disasters. So in that way, anxiety and depression are related to a problem of focus in 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 time. And if you're focused on just the present moment, it takes up your mind's bandwidth and you let go 
of the past or future focus by being focused just on the present moment. So that's an important, there are some other ways in which mindfulness helps, but that's probably the number one way in which it helps. And what does that, I guess that's, that's a separation from the thought or the experience in the body that's important there? Not so much the body, because in mindfulness, you can think of mindfulness as being like a spotlight. And you, it's a spotlight where you, uh, uh, where you uh, shine the spotlight wherever you want to shine it. And it may be focused on your breath. It may be focused on uh, your body sensations. It's really where you choose to focus it somewhere that you want to. So in that sense, mindfulness is really uh, something where you learn to focus your skills. And that's why it's, it's what we call a mindfulness practice, because over time, you learn how to uh, direct your focus. And, it is, and when you first start out, it may be a bit difficult, but as you gain skills, just like when you learn any other thing, like learning how to play the piano, you don't start playing a masterpiece. You start off with simple songs. And the same thing applies to mindfulness. You start out uh, learning how to focus maybe for briefer periods. And with time, you can choose to focus your attention for longer periods. You have a, a chapter in your book called um, Your Mind is Not Always Your Friend. Yes, that is completely true in depression. In depression, your mind generates negative thoughts. Thoughts like, I'll never be successful. I'm not as good as uh, my friend. Uh, I, I'm a bad person. Uh, I feel guilty. I think I'm guilty about something. And uh, those negative thoughts, if you believe those thoughts, then you get more depressed. So you get into a depressive spiral where your mind generates negative thoughts, you believe the negative thoughts, and then you get more depressed. So in a sense, you get depressed about being depressed, and it adds to the suffering that you undergo. And what mindfulness does is break up that cycle. So when you have a negative thought, you can step back from it and say, ah, there's a negative thought. That's a symptom of my depression. I don't have to believe that thought. So it's what we call decentering from those negative thoughts, gaining some distance from those negative thoughts. Guilt and self-evaluating is potentially something like we experience legitimate guilt as human beings because maybe sometimes we do or or or, you know, have had experience that generate that, how do you distinguish between um, what would be perhaps a, an appropriate guilt response versus an unhealthy or depressive guilt response? Well, a depressive guilt response is what we call an inappropriate guilt, where it really doesn't uh, uh, match up with reality. And it, it may be, say, a loved one died, and 
you say to yourself, if only I had been there 30 minutes earlier, they would have lived. And uh, the reality is, if you had been there 30 minutes earlier, uh, you wouldn't have been able to prevent their death anyhow. And so the inappropriate guilt uh, can be identified because when you're when you're not feeling so depressed, you don't believe in the guilt. So uh, you can choose to really let go of that guilt. What you're really uh, saying when you say, I feel guilty, I'm having the thought I did something worthy of being guilty. And that's the inappropriate guilt. So when you notice you're having that thought that's inappropriate, uh, you can say, aha, again, that's a symptom of the depression. Uh, I actually had an experience of depression myself early in my career, and I was filled with guilty thoughts that I had done something, and I spent a lot of time in psychotherapy trying to figure out what I was guilty over. I, I didn't have anything specific, so I uh, went over, was I guilty about something that happened in my childhood or guilty about something else? And uh, I found, as I learned more, that actually those that type of seeking is not very helpful because uh, what happens is uh, you're locked into trying to find something, whereas the guilty thought is really just a symptom of depression that most people who are depressed have such guilty thoughts. It doesn't mean you actually have done a crime worthy of guilt. It means you're having a symptom. Just like if you have pneumonia, you have a symptom of fever. The fever doesn't mean your metabolism is permanently uh, out of kilter. It means it's a symptom of the pneumonia. So if you accept it that way, uh, you're less bothered by it and realize that it's not something you have to take up as if it's a valid fact. And it seems to me, I know you you mentioned perfection in in much later on in the book, but there's there's something there about, at least for me, there's something there about this drive for either, you know, whether it's success or status or Happy, happiness, which we'll come to, um, and 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 somehow not attaining that, you know, uh, I hate to say it, but say Instagram worthy moment every day. Um, that seems to be an environment that kind of nurtures and grows that kind of gap between reality of day to day challenges, normal. Um, existence and this rarefied thing that a lot of people are seeking? Well, yes. Uh, we tend to think of uh, in this way, uh, that happiness is equal to what you achieve divided by your expectations. And the challenge in depression is this. Uh, well, if you think of your, if the expectations are high, uh, then, and your achievements are relatively fixed, you're not going to feel very happy. And so the numerator is your achievement and the denominator 
is your expectation. And the trouble with depression is your expectations are amplified. Like you said, uh, that tend towards perfection. I should be perfect. And if perfection is the denominator, uh, no matter what you achieve, you're not going to feel happy because you're not going to be able to achieve perfection. So, uh, but even more than that, in depression, what happens is the expectations get inflated and your own accomplishments get minimized. So it sets up a pattern where you really feel unhappy. You don't feel you're doing well. And uh, that's one thing that we strive for is to say, okay, uh, let's get those expectations into alignment. I mean, for example, this really became evident to me uh, in my work in consultation liaison psychiatry because I started off uh, having a liaison relationship to the medical surgical intensive care unit at my hospital. And I met with the nurses every week and in a group. And one week, the nurses were quite depressed. And in asking them what was going on, they said they'd had a number of patients who died. So what was happening there? Well, their expectation was that they should be able to save every patient. And of course, this was the medical surgical intensive care unit, a place where the sickest patients in the hospital went. And there's going to be uh, a number of those patients who don't make it. That's why what happens when you have the sickest patients. So the nurses were, in a sense, having the expectation that they should be able to save everyone. So even though their achievement was that they saved many patients and were able to help many patients, that they weren't achieving the perfection that they were thinking of. So they didn't feel very good about what they were doing. And what we did in that instance is help them reform that expectation. So to be more in line with what is achievable. For example, that they'd be able to save many patients, but that some patients were beyond being saved. And in those instances, they could help those patients die with dignity and help the family through the dying process. So in that sense, by modifying the expectation, they were able to have a much better match with their numerator, with their actual achievements, and feel satisfied and happier in their job. Is that an example of, re- re- I guess that's an example of reframing. It'd be an example. Your circumstance. Yes, of reframing, uh, reframing your expectations. And that's so important in depression because, as we say, the depression, uh, uh, the, the uh, expectations tend to run towards the infinite. So no matter what you achieve, you don't feel good. Some people say, uh, say it this way, perfection is the enemy of the good. And what mm-hmm. we are trying to achieve is a person feeling good about what they're doing. You share quite a lot about the role of compassion and self-compassion in, in the book. 
And this it caught my attention because I feel like through my own experience, I almost backed into um, compassion as a bit of an antidote <laughs> to some of my own struggles. And I've talked about it on the podcast before, so I don't think I'll retell the story here, but I'm very interested in hearing from you the role that compassion and self-compassion pay, play in becoming well or feeling good more. Yes, compassion and self-compassion, uh, compassion towards others or compassion towards yourself are very helpful in depression because in depression, uh, typically there's a lack of compassion, both for yourself and others, and particularly towards the self. And there's what we call a very harsh inner critic where you're critical of yourself in various ways that you, you, I should be doing this, I should be doing that, and you're shooting on yourself. And uh, compassion, I like to think of it this way, compassion and self-compassion are like a lens that you put in front of that spotlight of mindfulness. So you have the spotlight and then you have the lens of self-compassion. So for example, if you make a mistake in 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 depression, uh, you might say to yourself uh, <clears throat> something like, "Oh, what a dummy I am! You know, I can't even get this this thing right." And uh, whereas, if you put in compassion, there you might say, "Okay, I made a mistake," and humans make mistakes. Part of self-compassion is recognizing that you're part of a common humanity. I mean, even if you look at depression, it's not a mistake. It's you're part of 300 million people who are suffering with depression. It's not an unusual experience. And if you add that lens of compassion to the spotlight, then you come away with a much more gentle view of yourself. So you can say, okay, I made a mistake. That's what humans do. And I can learn from my mistake and be better off because I made that mistake. It isn't a, it isn't a disaster, as I might tend to think initially, but rather it's a mistake that I can learn from and go on with my life. And studies have shown that higher levels of compassion are associated with less depression. So being gentle with yourself can be very powerful. Even in some studies of people with uh, uh, soldiers going off to uh, war where they were first tracked by levels of self-compassion, it was found that people who had higher levels of self-compassion had less of a tendency to experience post-traumatic stress disorder because they were able to be gentler with themselves. So it's a very important thing. And compassion is also important because it's an antidote for anger. I'll give you a story that illustrates this quite well, and it's very, it was very powerful for me. I was on one of the retreats I mentioned, one of the, it's what is called a silent retreat, where you go to a meditation center and you uh, are silent for seven days. And the highlight of your day 
is often the uh, the midday meal, which is the biggest meal of the day. And you're supposed to be doing everything mindfully when you're there, including eating mindfully and really tasting your food. And when I, I got my food and I sat down at an empty table and I started eating, and I was really focused on what the food tasted like. I was shining that spotlight on the food and the tastes and the chewing process and so on. And I was really getting into it. And then a short while later, a fellow came and sat down across from me. And this man was, uh, he was sniffling incessantly, <laughs> sniffling like that. And it interrupted my being able to focus on my food. And I became very irritated. I said, what? And I had thoughts like, why did this guy come and sit down next to me? He's spoiling my food meditation. He's, why didn't he go sit off in a corner somewhere? And I almost felt like throwing some napkins at him. And I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's try this compassion thing. Let's try being compassionate. And Sorry, it, I'm chuckling because it's like pulling it out of your toolbox, right? In the, in the moment. In, in the moment, exactly. So I tried the compassion thing and I said, well, wait a minute. First of all, this guy isn't doing this to me. And secondly, this guy probably has a bad cold or allergies. You know, the poor guy is suffering. So as soon as I did that, it shifted my view dramatically. Instead of taking it as a personal attack, I, I was able to see it as something for what it was and able to... Uh, be compassionate towards him. And as soon as I did so, I was able to go back to my eating focus without any problem whatsoever. Even though he was continuing with his sniffling, it just dropped away as bothering me. So it, it's, it is a tool that you can pull out and apply to yourself. You can catch yourself if you're not being compassionate towards yourself or to other people. And in fact, one thing to keep in mind is that in studies, we're about 80% more likely to be compassionate as we are to others as we are to ourselves. So it's something we really need to bring to ourselves and think about adding to our tools that we apply to that spotlight. I just want to I just want to go back to that. I mean, you said we are we are more likely to be more compassionate to others than ourselves. Yes. Is that the bottom line there? That's the bottom line. If you think of it, when we ask people to do a compassion meditation, they're, if they usually, almost uh, frequently, the people will say, uh, and we have them focus on being compassionate to others and then compassionate towards themselves, they say it's much easier to be compassionate towards others. And it's, it takes much more practice to be able to bring that compassion towards yourself. What would you characterize as the opposite of compassion? Well, For me, judgment comes to mind, but it, I'm sure it's not just a one thing. What do you see? Because you, you work with so many people and you've seen so much. 
what do you see people show up and, and there's a sign it's like, Oh, he's, they're not being, being compassionate towards themselves. How does it occur? Well, I think your, uh, your word is actually a very good one. Judgment. I mean, there are other ones that, uh, you know, are descriptions of what it means to not be compassionate. It can be being critical is, an, is another good word uh, where you're being critical of yourself. And uh, as I said before, uh, you may be shooting on yourself. Like mm. I should be, I should be smarter. I should be better looking. I should be thinner or I should be heavier. I should be more in shape. I should be richer. I should be more successful. And what we try to do is help to soften that should statement to, uh, to, I always say to people, replace that should word with it would be nice if. And uh, this got driven home one time when I was talking with my son. I said something like, you should be doing this. And he said, you mean, Dad, it would be nice if I did this. (laughs) Busted. (laughs) Busted. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's such a, so it's such a tendency with, I think, within us all to go there first, or maybe within us all, maybe it's, it, maybe that's the difference between somebody who struggles with depression and who doesn't right? that tendency. But I think of myself, I, I should myself often. Yes. Mostly in terms of what I should be doing in that moment instead well, I think replacing it with it, it would be nice if is a good start. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, you know, it's, it's so, it, it, I just want to take a moment to say how appreciative of one of the reasons I love having this podcast is I get to have these conversations with you and people like you who are experts in your field. And I always feel like I benefit in some way because there's always a reminder. And then I love putting it out there because then others come forward with what they saw or heard that had a positive impact on them. So I just want to thank you for that. And, uh, and the idea of compassion as a filter is, is one that I haven't, I haven't thought of that because when you were talking about the, the, um, the soldiers and PTSD, looking what what's healthy or kinder like with the compassion in place first what the difference is really um counters this this idea of it's something that we should be doing after the fact or in response to hard things yes and that's where, again where mindfulness and its focus on the present moment uh, can help, because often uh, a person may be ruminating about uh, what they should be doing, and both applying the filter to that, and also coming to the present moment, 
So if you're saying, I, I, I should have said this in this argument, or I should have done this with my boss, or I should have done this with my uh, partner, uh, if you are able to shift and bring your attention to the present moment, it's a way of gently reminding yourself, ah, let's come to focus on my body right now. What do I notice in my body? Do I notice tension being present, a tightness in my shoulders or my neck? And you can do a technique we call a body scan and where you focus sequentially on uh, different uh, segments of your body and kind of walk your way through the entire body and notice what's going on in your body in the present moment. And that is a way, it's an antidote again for being trapped in a focus on the past and uh, things that really cannot be changed. Here's an important uh, tip. Most people who are ruminating about the past, meaning they're trapped in an endless loop of going over things, don't realize they're ruminating. And ruminating is a big driver of depression. So mindfulness, you can focus on not only your body parts or your breath, you can focus on your thoughts that are occurring. Your mind is like a popcorn popper of of thoughts. The thoughts keep popping up. And uh, if you're mindful of your thoughts, you can notice them as they're occurring. And then you're in a position to change your relationship to them. So if you notice okay, there's the thoughts. I'm, I'm focused. My thoughts are I should have done this with my boss. I should have said this to my partner or whatever. You can say, ah, I'm ruminating. I'm really focused on ruminative thoughts. And if you notice you're ruminating, you then have a choice about what you're going to do. You can say, okay, I'm ruminating. I'm going to continue ruminating. I love to ruminate. If you know. Uh, but most people don't even notice that they're ruminating. They're just locked into it. But more likely, if you notice you're ruminating, you can say, okay, I'm going to shift my attention from rumination to something else in the present moment, like my breath. And we teach very brief meditations that can help break up uh, ruminative cycles. I should mention that in my book and and on my website, there are uh, a number of meditations, most of them fairly brief, that are available for for free for downloading or streaming that really are helpful in terms of breaking up ruminative cycles. So it's a good way to get a a taste of what mindfulness meditation is really about. And as I say, some of them are very brief, like there's a three-minute meditation, which could really help Mm. break up a cycle of rumination. Thank you for mentioning that. And, And I'd love to just to have sort of incentive for people to go there is understanding beyond depression, what does, how does rumination affect us, you know, in our in our physiology, in our, in our brains. 
you know, or if, if it's rumination leads to depression, depression leads to this, because you get into some of the, um, I had a neurologist on recently and, and that was very, very interesting to, to hear her journey from, from the ER neurologist to wanting to study integrative medicine to understand the impact. I think it's really important for us as people who are walking around with a brain in our head to realize that we are altering our, our, just our, our state, but also our physiology, our brain health. That's correct. You know, we did, uh, the, uh, our study of mindfulness based, uh, cognitive therapy, uh, which was on a large number of people, about 180 people. And we looked at those people for clinical outcomes. And we found that with mindfulness training, they had less depression, less anxiety, less rumination, and improved mood and more uh, skill at mindfulness. So it had very good clinical outcomes. But just as important, we also measured in a subset of those people we measured actual brain function using functional MRI. That's a type of MRI that measures blood flow uh, second by second. So blood flow is a proxy for uh, mind activation. And in depression, people have uh, typically lower function in this area, the left prefrontal cortex, the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, and increased activation in the deeper layers of the brain, such as the amygdala, which is can be considered to be the warning area of the brain. So people had lower function in the prefrontal cortex, which is that area associated with emotion regulation, with logical thinking with uh, the ability to make decisions. That's why people who are depressed often have difficulty making even the simplest decision. They're sort of stuck and not thinking very clearly. And what we found uh, in our study is that people had that pattern of decreased activation and increased activation in the deeper layers. But after eight weeks of mindfulness training, those patterns reversed where the prefrontal cortex had increased activation and those warning areas of the brain decreased, which was back in a sense towards the normal function of the brain where the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex was at normal levels of activation and the lower level, such as the amygdala, uh, was at a lower level of activation. So this means that this mindfulness technique can actually shift the brain function. That's what we call neuroplasticity. So your brain isn't locked into being what it is in depression. You can actually modify your brain function by using this technique for as short as eight weeks. That's almost shocking to me as far as this, the speed, the relative speed, but also the implications of 
the the combination of not being able to regulate your emotion and the impact on decision making and and higher order thought it's that's i guess the physiological side to that depressive spiral that's right exactly there 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 are several things about it i mean one is there are definite brain changes in depression uh, that occur, and they they can be modified. Antidepressants have a similar effect, and uh, uh, so does the mindfulness training. And uh, and in fact, we took people in our study who had. Uh, failed to fully recover despite two or more antidepressant trials. And these were people who had been depressed for an average of seven years, and we were able to produce uh, those significant changes in both mood and brain function after eight weeks of mindfulness training. So it had a very powerful effect in a group of participants who had been suffering quite a bit. Do you track them over the the longer term as well? I know once you're they're out of your study or out of your care, it would be hard to monitor whether or not they continue on. We tr- but what have you seen as far as longer term impact? Well, the long there's a, our study and some other studies have looked at this. Our study followed people for one year after the mindfulness training. And we found that uh, our findings persisted over the course of the year. Uh, so after they finished the training, the improvement in mood and so on uh, continued for over a year. Uh, and in some instances, actually increased as the person continued to practice on their own. And so... To, clar- to clarify, so if they did the eight weeks and then stopped, many of them were still reporting benefits a year later, yeah. as well as people who continued? Uh, not, not exactly. Uh, well, our study compared people who uh, had been on antidepressants for uh, a period of time, it's actually on two or more. Some of them have been on three or four and hadn't recovered. And we divided that group into two parts. One got mindfulness training and the other got uh, a health ed- education program. So it was also eight weeks. And at the end of the eight-week period, this was, this was our control group. At the end of eight weeks, the people with the mindfulness training had superior depression reduction than the people who had the health education reduction, which had been just, just as long as the mindfulness training. And then we followed both of the groups out for a year and found that the people in the, actually uh, in both groups, whatever benefit they have, uh, continued at at least the same level or increased over that same time. And the people who say, for example, in the mindfulness group, they didn't have any more final uh, formal mindfulness training, but they were encouraged to continue their mindfulness practice on their own or to attend other groups in the area 
that they could attend. So, for example, there's a mindfulness class offered uh, one evening a week in our community. We gave them a, a number of resources they could go to. And uh, they so they they were encouraged to continue their mindfulness, but not under our heading. So then we looked at them at the end of a year and found uh, that the improvements that they'd experienced earlier continued. Mm, that's wonderful. Um, if somebody was listening and wanted to start a mindfulness practice, what are some of the approaches or I know you said you have recordings on your site but do you find that if somebody's having to do self-guided is it beneficial to to go and meditate in in groups compared to trying to do it on your own what what have you seen in your experience well uh there are a number of ways and it depends on a number of factors uh, going to a group can be helpful because you get the support of the group and uh, that can be beneficial. And uh, going to a, a formal class in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy can be helpful. And uh, if you Google, Google that term, uh, you'll usually be able to find uh, some groups uh, for training in that in your area, but of course it's not available all over. And there are, uh, you know, some sort of barriers like having to attend on a regular basis and, uh, having to pay for it and, and, and the availability of, uh, somebody who's leading the group. So that's one option and it can be a very good one. Uh, another option is to get a taste of what, uh, the mindfulness training is like, and that's what I've incorporated into the book because mm -hmm. it's sort of structured similarly to the uh, actual course. It includes many of the features of that, and people can work along chapter by chapter, and there are mindfulness uh, meditations that are available for download or streaming that go along with each separate chapter. So that's that's available to anybody uh you know who wants to do that either to get the meditations or i recommend they really do the meditations in conjunction with the chapters because the chapter kind of explains more about the meditations so it's it's very helpful to do the to have the book and do it in conjunction with the meditations but if you just want to sort of get a a little experience with the meditations you can do it without it so that's your that's your goal with the book is to put it into people's hands Ex literally yes exactly it is to bring it to a broader uh population than, than those who will either be able to find a group or uh, have the means to be able to do it this is something they can do uh you know virtually anywhere and do it in the comfort of their own home. So, some of the ideas that you bring forward are a bit counterintuitive, like running towards the roar. Could you tell the, the story with that? I, I particularly enjoyed that piece, and uh, and I think the listeners will as well. Yes. What, what we see is that there's a great deal of avoidance in depression and anxiety. 
And uh, that, uh, for example, with anxiety, there are different, there's many different types of anxiety. So there's social anxiety where a person wants to avoid being in social groups. There's a phobia anxiety where the person wants to avoid a particular object, like avoid bridges. Uh, there's uh, panic d- disorder where the person wants to avoid panic uh, episodes. And so uh, those avoidance things tend to perpetuate themselves. And really what you need to do is uh, run towards the anxiety. There's a saying, approach the fear and watch it disappear. And uh, one of the examples I use in the book is uh, that if you happen to be stuck in Africa in a, uh, on a savanna, uh, there's uh, uh, a story about how lions hunt. And when the lions, uh, when a lion gets old and gets toothless, uh, their role in the hunting becomes uh, they roar and drive the prey towards the younger lions who then attack the prey and get a meal out of it. And if you're the prey, actually the smartest thing you could do would be to run towards the roar because that lion is toothless. And if you run towards the roar, you'll be running away from the younger, more uh, uh, well-toothed lions, and you'll have a better chance of escaping. So running towards the roar is a sort of shorthand way of saying, run towards the fear. If you want to get over a fear, you have to approach it. You have to go after it. And sometimes we think of uh, fear, of course, there can be real fear that's appropriate, just like there can be real guilt that's appropriate. If you've done something wrong that is worthy of guilt, the guilt may be appropriate. Not, and, of course, which differs from the inappropriate guilt so common in depression. And similarly, there can be real fear. If you have a real lion in front of you, it's appropriate to be fearful. <clears throat> but often in anxiety disorders and depression, the fear is really false evidence that appears real. False evidence that appears real. So those thoughts about the situation are amplified into fear states. And what you need to do is really approach it. If you want to get over a, a phobia, you have to approach the, the phobic object. If you're afraid of crossing a bridge, you're not going to get over that fear unless you approach the bridge. You could sit with a psychoanalyst and go over what are the childhood causes of your fear, and you'll be there for many years uh, and usually not make much progress. What you really need to do to get over your fear is approach it. And you may start out in small doses, like approach uh, a mile away, then the next time a half a mile away, and the next time a quarter of a mile away, the next time towards the base of the bridge before you actually cross the bridge. So you can do it in small doses, 
but you need to approach the phobic object. And that's the same thing in depression. If you're, uh, if you're, you may be depressed about going into set, uh, social situations because you think uh, you won't be successful. Do you want to go to the party tonight? No, uh, everybody will ignore me. You're having the negative thought about the party and you won't know until you go to the party. And you may find actually not everybody ignores you, but you would never have learned that unless you approached the situation you have a tendency to avoid. Would you say that when we look at these things and, and try to develop a wisdom around them, the depressed mind is making decisions that are making their, the world smaller, um, you know, almost in a constricting fashion, then tending towards isolation versus taking that step out there and connection, which I see as more expansive. Yes, that's... Is, is that a good compass? Yes, that's a very good compass. That's true. The, the person who's depressed definitely has a constricting uh, world about them. They're having less connections with others. They're withdrawing. They're not, you know, having as many social events. They may be constricting in their work setting. For example, they may turn down uh, job promotions because they require more activity and they don't feel they're capable of it because of depressive thoughts. So really the person needs to counter those depressive thoughts and start to approach those situations that they're fearful of. And as they do so, they may learn that those ideas were just ideas and not facts. And I think, counterintuitively again it's the putting yourself in that what the situation feels vulnerable but the feedback the real feedback from the or the actual feedback from that situation isn't near like your lion it's the perfect analogy or metaphor the reality it doesn't have those teeth it's often not as bad as what is expected exactly exactly the uh, Reality, uh, that's why it's really false evidence. You think it has those teeth, but it really doesn't. And But you don't learn that unless you approach it. Right. And it's likely, <laughs> I'm thinking, our rumination probably has more teeth in it than the actual fear. Yes, rumination is really uh, beating yourself up about, you know, past decisions, past Mm -hmm. you know, way you manage things. And, uh, and that can be very powerful. It's rumination in some studies uh, that have been done uh, is the most powerful uh, uh, driver of depression. And there are incidentally different forms of rumination. If you get into mm -hmm. rumination, you can really ruminate about rumination and, some people break down rumination into pondering, you know, thinking about, well, how I might do things in the future or just letting your mind uh, 
go and think about things, which pondering doesn't tend to be associated with depression. The form of rumination that really does have a lot to do with depression is brooding, brooding, endlessly going over something in the past. And incidentally, for some reason, uh, rumination tends to be even more common in women than in men. So it's an important driver of depression. And this may be one factor why uh, depression is uh, somewhat more common in women. If someone's listening and they're either seeing or hearing themselves in, in, in what we're speaking about, and beyond trying to do it all yourself, it's becoming quite apparent here that we're, we're talking about an, an epidemic of people who are really so, like struggling. I won't use, apply suffering because you use it differently in your book, but struggling but may not know where to start. Is it a trip to the doctor? Is it a trip to a website? Like what, what, if someone you cared about very deeply was struggling like this, what would you wish for them as far as some of the moves they could make to try to feel better? Well, there's a spectrum of moves they could make. Uh, they could talk to their primary care doctor uh, who they who could start initiate a treatment for them uh, for depression. And primary care doctors are actually prescribe 75% of the antidepressants in this country. So antidepressant, so uh, primary care doctors, of course, have limited time to spend with patients typically. So antidepressants are an easy way of trying to help a person. But people can also see therapists, uh, psychotherapists, or psychiatrists, uh, who are, of course, the psychiatrist is able to do psychotherapy and medications. So there's a range of mental health professionals that people could see, uh, marriage and family counselors or professional counselors, psychologists who all may be able to help with depression. Uh, if people want to do self-help, uh, of course, looking at the book can give them a good start on that. And so there's a range from uh, what people can do from self-help to contacting somebody. And of course, if somebody is feeling suicidal, then I'd say it's very important that they contact a professional or any of those people that I mentioned yeah, to really get some immediate help so that uh, the suicidal uh, feelings can be addressed. Suicide can be thought of uh, as really the person thinking uh, they feel helpless and hopeless. And what that translates into being is I don't think I can help myself. That means I'm helpless. And hopeless means I don't think you can help me either. And those thoughts are not facts. The person who's severely depressed tends to believe those thoughts. But that's why they need to see somebody who can help them learn that those thoughts are just thoughts and not facts. And if you're feeling suicidal, 
it's really important to get in to see somebody and, uh, you know, get started in a treatment program. And that treatment program can vary, you know, across the spectrum from just psychotherapy to just medication or to a combination. What often works best is a combination of medication and therapy if the person is acutely depressed. Um, to be responsible with this, I'll, I will make sure that I put some hotline numbers in the show notes of this episode as well, which I do anytime um, suicide comes up for, for, uh, for both countries, for America and Canada. Um, the, I mean, your, your title of your book to come right back around to it, it doesn't even infer that antidepressants alone may not be enough. It's, it's, to me, it's an outright statement that most people are going to need more. Yes, I'm not against antidepressants, and I didn't write the book really as uh, trying to say that because depre- antidepressants can be life-saving for people. They work probably the most rapidly. In studies, antidepressants work usually faster than uh, uh, psychotherapy does. So if, if, you, if somebody is very severely depressed, antidepressants may be a very good first choice. And as I say, they can be life-saving for people. The trouble with antidepressants are that in studies of treatment of depression, after one full 12-week course of depression, uh, with antidepressants, only about 30% of people have fully recovered. If you take the remaining group and give them another antidepressant trial for 12 weeks, after that second trial, you end up with a total of 50% of people have recovered. So that means 50% haven't recovered. And the difficulty with depression is this if you're in that group, that hasn't recovered after two antidepressant trials, you tend to boost that inner critic and saying, something's wrong with me. I'm defective. Uh, I'll never get better. And that isn't true. They have to learn that that isn't true. That it means that they have uh, a significant depression, but they're among the half of people who don't recover despite two antidepressants. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. It doesn't mean they're really should give up hope. It means they need to add alternatives to the package. That's why the name of our study was practicing alternatives to heal depression, because we took people who hadn't recovered for two or more antidepressant trials and gave them the mindfulness program to help them recover. So if somebody has just been treated with antidepressants, adding the mindfulness program or adding psychotherapy to the program. And now there are even other things that can be added to the package, things like transcranial magnetic magnetic stimulation, uh, a new medication called ketamine, or even electroconvulsive therapy. So there are definitely things that can be done to help depression. And it's important for a person to know that if they fail to recover with antidepressants, there is definitely hope for them. Thank you for that. Um, it, I think this is so important for people to understand. Like, there's there's a journey to it. That it's not 
maybe even likely to work out on the first attempt, just like you could go and see a therapist and they might not be the best fit for you. But what I'm as I'm listening to you, what I'm wanting to respond with is that this is, is to not give up, right. To not fall into that idea, I guess, depressed idea that I'm so unique in my inability to move forward that I give up and, and, and become um, more, even more affected. That's right. We had uh, one fellow comes to mind as you're talking uh, who, in our group. He had been severely depressed for, uh, I don't remember exactly, but several years. And he had had all kinds of antidepressant trials. He even had electroconvulsive therapy. So he'd been through a lot of different treatments. And he went through the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and he didn't improve much. And he ended up repeating the course three times. And by the end of the third time, he had improved very significantly. And so it just highlights that sometimes you need to uh, stick with things and be open to trying them. And uh, he improved slightly after the first time and more after the second and then very significantly after the third. And, and repeating the class or, uh, <clears throat> can be very helpful. Sometimes reading the book uh, may help you uh, understand what's going on in the course. So even if somebody gets into a group, reading the book can be very helpful because it explains what's going on in the class and uh, what's going on in, in, with the meditations. And that was true with him. It was really gratifying to see that he, despite his having been treated with various things, he was able to improve. And each time he took the course, he got more out of it. And we like to say the, the course didn't change much. I mean, some of the participants changed each time he did it, but the basics of the course didn't change. But what he got out of it changed each time. And it's kind of like the saying, no man walks in the same river twice. Each time you walk in it, it's a little bit different. Mm. The, the conditions change and the environment change. And, and I think what I, I know we're at the end of our time um, together, but the idea of being persistent with your care and, 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 I, I wrote down here, be as persistent in your search for feeling better as you are in your rumination. <laughs> if you're, if you're there, we can give it, you know, it, it's, I don't want to do what I think sometimes the self-help world does too much, which is put too much responsibility on the person who is having the, the thoughts or who is experiencing the challenge. But realizing that there are many, many, many alternatives and that you are not alone is incredibly critical to making that the journey. That's right. That's, that's important. And, you know, that's, that goes to the self-compassion and to recognize one of the important ingredients 
of self-compassion is realizing you're part of a much larger community. So if you're suffering from depression, you aren't alone. It's not a strange or unique illness, even though it's, it's not to say that it's not a painful condition, but many people are suffering from it. And there's no need to uh, be harsh and critical of yourself for having a condition that is so common in the world. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for your time, Dr. Eisendrath. It has been a pleasure to speak with you, but also just a privilege to mine your experience and, and your vast knowledge. Well, thank you. I've appreciated being on with you, and uh, you're a very good interviewer. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I do appreciate that. Thank you for listening to Free Your Inner Guru. I know you have a lot of choice where you receive your inspiration and information. If today's episode resonated with you, I'd be grateful if you would take a few extra seconds for three quick things. First, if there's an idea or story that you know would make a difference in someone else's life, follow the link in the show notes back to our website where you can easily share it with them. Second, subscribe so that you can be part of the ongoing conversation on whatever app or website you're listening on. Big conversations become the catalyst for meaningful change. And if you happen to be listening on iTunes, please take a few moments to leave a rating and a review. The last thing I'll leave you with is that we are building a community of conscious leaders to engage in big conversations and support the Free Your Inner Guru podcast. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash Free Your Inner Guru or support.freeyourinnerguru.com. Until next time, I'm Laura Tucker signing off for Free Your Inner Guru.